It was about an hour before Shabbat, Friday afternoon. And we were on a base in the Bigah, in the Jordan Valley, right? We haven't told an army story in a couple of days, uh, or a couple of hours. Um, we were on a base in the Bigah, in the Jordan Valley, and uh, it was like very quiet, like, you know, boring. You know, not Lebanon, not Gaza, just boring Jordanian, whatever. And we were um, training to be tank crews. And the job of our commanders, so it seemed to us, was basically to torture us. And they did it very well. I don't remember what it was that we had done that got them upset or annoyed, or whether they just needed to find something that got them upset. But they decided that they were going to do for us what's called a Mizdar Amerikai. I don't know why that's the name that it's given, but that's what it's called. And basically, what happens is, instead of just cleaning down your, your rooms, in this particular base, we were actually in rooms. We weren't in tents, which was great. And you had to, you know, you have a Mizdar, an inspection. And you have a bigger inspection on Friday, so we clean for Shabbat. Um, you have to wash the floor in your room, make your beds just right, you know, you have to bounce a coin and all that kind of stuff. Some reason this wasn't good enough for them, so they decided that we were going to take everything out and we were going to have an inspection on the Mishtach Tankim, where the tanks are. So we had to take our beds out and we had to take our closets out. We had to take everything there and rearrange our rooms, like on this, you know, outdoors on this, I don't know Mishtach is, this uh, cement platform where the tanks were. This is a lot of work. And you're exhausted, and you've been up all night because you were doing like the weekly whatever. Thursday night is always a white night, which means you don't go to sleep. And it's like an hour and a half till Shabbat, an hour till Shabbat, and you're dying. And they decided that whatever we did wasn't good enough. So they told us, okay, everybody's going to grab your beds, you're going to pick up your beds, and you're going to start running around the tanks. When you get back, you set it up again, it better be right. So we do this. And you know, you're schlepping beds, and they're heavy. There's like metal bed frames, double bunk bed bed frames. And then they started putting guys on the beds, and we're dying. And there was one guy, he was like the town clown. Very bright guy, very sharp wit. And he just always knew how to come up with a one-liner. I don't remember what it was he said. When we got behind the tanks, the sergeant who was doing this to us, the, the, the commanders who were torturing us, couldn't see us. So you had to look like you were suffering. But when we got behind the tanks, he started going on, and we were killing ourselves laughing. But then we knew that if we would come back to the other end of the tanks and we were laughing, we'd get in more trouble. So then we would try to keep our face straight. And then we'd do this again, and they'd send us around and around. And somebody says, you know, Shabbat's in like 50 minutes. Like, they can't torture us. We were as Dernikim. We're all religious guys. They can't torture us into Shabbat. So we're going to beat them at their own game. We're just going to keep this going until Shabbos, and then they have to stop. And somehow Barak didn't manage to stop laughing when he got around the tanks, right? And he was laughing, and we could see the commander's face, and the whole unit just exploded. We're just killing ourselves laughing. So they made Barak take an 05 machine gun, which is a very heavy machine gun, lift it up over his head, right? And run around the tanks with this thing over his head. Now that's a sick thing to do. It's actually probably dangerous. It could hurt your back, whatever it is. But, you know, nobody thought about those things in those days. And... This is just not possible. Like, you can't run with this 05 around the tanks again and again. But nobody told Barak that it was impossible. He was not a big guy. I mean, he was probably like my size. But he was determined that in this little war, he was going to win the war. And it was becoming apparent that he was going to win the war. Right? And 
we realized like we were we were totally in their hands. They could do with us whatever they wanted. We were their slaves. And I remember thinking at that point, like, you suddenly realize that you're completely under the thumb of another person. There's nothing you can do. He can tell you to do whatever he wants you to do, and you'll just do it. Right? Tells you to work, you work. Tells you to jump, you'll jump. Tells you to do push-ups, you'll do push-ups. Within that time frame, you're basically a slave. And I remember thinking, like, what makes a slave? You know, there's a story that um, Herschel Schachter tells, which was later written up in, in the book, but he was a, a chaplain for the U.S. 8th Army, I believe, and he, he was with the army when they liberated Buchenwald. There's a famous picture, which you can actually see when we go to Yad Vashem, you'll see it, of him conducting services on Shavuot in Buchenwald just a few weeks after they liberated the camp. For some of these people, it was the first time they had davened or anything else. And there's this one fellow, and they had like a daily minion. And there were all these Jews who hadn't, hadn't davened, they hadn't held a siddur, they hadn't learned Torah, nothing. In like years. And all of a sudden, they're free, and there's a rabbi, and they have siddurim. There's actually a, a shas, a Talmud, that was published by the American army in Germany. And there's a copy of it, uh, there's some of the volumes of it in the Gush, based manager, if anybody goes to Gush, I'll tell you where you can find it. And he noticed, Rabbi Schechter, that there was one fellow. He used to always stand on the side. He would come, he would be there, he was curious what was going on, but he wouldn't actually daven. So one day, Rabbi Schechter walks over to him. Figures, the guy obviously wants to daven, maybe he forgot how to daven, maybe he... And <coughs> he says to him, I notice every day you come to our service, but you never pray. Perhaps you'd like to join us. And he looks at Rabbi Shechter and he says, I will never pray another day in my life. And Rabbi Shechter thinks, okay, like, you know, given what he'd just been through, he was a survivor, you can't blame him. But he didn't stop there. He said, there was a fellow who smuggled a sitter into the camp. And I remember I saw that he had smuggled a prayer book, a sitter, and I thought that's incredible, that a Jew would risk his life to pray until I found out what he was doing with it. He would only let somebody use his sitter to pray if they gave up their daily ration. He took bread from starving people so they could use his sitter. Can you imagine? So he said, when I saw that, I decided I would never pray again. So if Shechter looks at him, and he says the following, instead of thinking about how one Jew could extort his fellow prisoners and take their food in order to allow them to pray, why don't you ask yourself what motivated all those prisoners to be willing to give up their food in Auschwitz just to be able to daven? And the prisoner, the survivor, looks at Rav Schechter, there's like a glimmer of a tear in his eye. And he takes the sitter from Rav Schechter's preferred hand and he starts to daven. That prisoner's name by the name I know? Simon Wiesenthal. He becomes a well-known Nazi hunter and so on and so forth. What does it mean to be enslaved? And what makes us truly free? So this week we read it, 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 Rashi makes it clear just like what came before is at Sinai this is also at Sinai. This is part of our Sinai. Rabbi Sachs has a magnificent article he talks about the fact that 
that Yitzhak is sort of the grand narrative. And you would expect the narrative to continue. There's so many more stories in the Torah. <coughs> How come all of a sudden we start to get into details? Because grand visions survive because they get into the details. It's not enough just to keep the vision. You have to get into the details. Okay. So now we're starting the meat. You know? You came to a writer. You had the first day. Remember that? You walked in. Okay, you walked into the dining room. Yeah, yeah. We had a mincha. You're in quarantine. You're out of quarantine. Eventually we get up to the roof. We go to Nachla Kibbutzim. You have the first day you meet your Rebbe. It's like that first day of school. It's not really a day of school. Then you have the first Shabbat. We spend Shabbat together. It's the longest sharing in history probably you ever had on Friday night. And then you get to Sunday. Now you got to get down to it. Let's, let's, let's start to learn. So Mishpatim is a very important parsha because this is where we start to hear what the Torah is all about. What are the mitzvahs? Putting aside for the moment the end of Yitro, Mizbech, I'm not going to go there right now. So what do we start with? And if you were going to start with a mitzvah, you're going to pick a mitzvah that's the foundation, what would you start with? Pick a mitzvah say, this is what we're going to start with. We're going to get to the laws. What would you pick? Shabbos would work. What else could you pick? Pardon? Yeah, okay, you would pick that, right? What else? Kashrus, Tefillah, Kibbut Aveim, good one with your dad today, excellent move. You'll get an extra burger tomorrow, right? Kitiknet. I know I missed something good. What did I miss? Pardon? We're having burgers. Well, Mr. Epstein's treating everybody burgers, no? Right? So, so. When you buy a slave, when you enslave your brother, a Jew, what is this doing here? Why are we talking about it? What is an evidivri? Why do we start with this mitzvah? This is bizarre. And if we're already talking about this, and I'm sure you like this question, how could you have the concept of an evidivri? Didn't we just get out of Egypt? Weren't the Jewish people meant to share with the world that slavery is wrong? That no human being should be enslaved by another? How how can we start off with this? What is the concept of an evidivri? So, it goes without saying that if this is in Parashat Mishpatim, and obviously this Shabbos will have a chance to talk about other things in Mishpatim, <coughs> this must be a very critical idea. So first of all, let's dispel the notion that an Evid Ivri is a slave. You know, I went to, um, I grew up in New York. And there's a rule that usually you don't see the things that are closest to you. Like if you're an English tourist and you come to America, you go to the Statue of Liberty. If you grew up in New York, you might never have gotten to the Statue of Liberty because you're not a tourist, right? So I used to bike ride up and down Riverside Drive, for those of you who know New York, and there's this big tomb. It's called Grant's Tomb. Anybody know who's buried there? Grant. Grant. You know who Grant was? Ulysses S. Grant. He was a general in the Civil War and president of the United States. He was also probably an anti-Semite, but we're not going to go there right now. And he has, maybe... And, and, and he has a massive tomb. And I never, and so one day I'm biking and I stop there to take a look. And there's a little mini museum in there. He's buried there, his wife's buried there. 
there's a little mini exhibit on why they fought the Civil War. And there are some photos there of African Americans who were enslaved. It's a, they're horrific. You, you don't really get it until you see a photo like that. And they're showing these individuals, first of all, they look emaciated. They're, they're, some of them were beaten, some of them were whipped, you can see the lashes on them. It really hits you. That's my image of a slave. This is a completely different reality. So first of all, let's talk about what an Everett Ivory is. So here's a few halachas. First of all, it's interesting that an Everett Ivory goes free after six years. Okay? By the way, that six years is not Shemitah. People make that mistake. Shemitah has nothing to do with this, right? Yovel is a different story, but the sabbatical year is, is agricultural. Sixth year that a slave goes free is just six years from when he was, when he was purchased, right? Why does a slave become a slave? Anybody know? There are two reasons. Yeah? Pardon? He has debt, and he can't pay his debt, right? That's one possibility. What's the other possibility? He chooses to. Pardon? He chooses to. Well, he chooses to to pay his debt. Can he just choose to do that? Nope. In fact, the Rambam is very clear about that. So is the Gemara. You cannot become an Evid Ivri unless you're poor. Okay? That's very clear in the halacha. Does poor mean you have to pay debt? Pardon? You have, to have, you have to have debt. The Bezdin has to decide you're allowed to do this. I can't just go sell myself as an Evid Ivri. And no one else is allowed to buy me if, if yeah. What's the second reason? Pardon? No, that could be bet. Right. Somebody steals. If you steal money and you can't afford to pay back, right? We talked about this, some of us earlier in the Shir and Shema, right? Uh, I don't believe that Judaism believes in the context of punishment. Ownership is really a consequence. If you steal money, so there's a consequence. You've taken money from somebody, you have to pay it back, right? And if you don't pay it back, then that's a problem. You have to pay it back. Ah, what do you do if you don't pay it back? What if you, do if you don't have money to pay it back? So they sell you into servitude. They value, the Bezdin actually, the court actually values what your worth is. You know, maybe you're a plumber. So what's an hour's worth of plumbing? And what's a day's worth of plumbing? And what's a week worth of plumbing? And, you know, six years is the maximum, but you could be sold as a, as a, as a slave for like three months or whatever it is, right, okay? Um, <coughs> you're working off your debt. Once you have worked off your debt, you go free. Affairs in the Rambam, right? Gemara, Rambam, okay? You cannot sell a slave on an auction block. You can't sell him in an alleyway. It has to be done um, quietly and with dignity. The halacha that's most fascinating to me, if you look in the Rambam, in the halachos of, of Avdus, right? Where do we find, by the way, where would you find the halachos of Avadim? Pardon? It's a good guess, but no. No. Kenyan. Because it's a Kenyan, it's a contract. The Evid makes a contract with the person that he's going to be working for. Which is kind of funny. It's a little bit different from a slave. A slave didn't have a contract. Right? In fact, the law is very clear that when a slave goes free, he has a shtar, they have to annul the contract. Right? It's very different from the way we use this. What does the Ramam say? So if you look in the laws of Avadim, um, sorry, in Perak Aleph, um, 
קודם כל, אין לך איש בישראל שמוכרים אותו בטין אלא הגנב בלבד. הבזדין can only put a person into the status if he's a thief. There is no other instance, says the Rambam, where a person is sold as an evidently. Not debt, not anything else, right? Okay? Um, I'm looking for this halacha. Yeah. Kol Ebed, this is Perak Aleph, Halacha Tet. Kol Ebed Ivri, O Am Ivriach, Chayav Adon Lashvotan Lo Bemachal Mishke. Uvamashke, Beksut Uvamador. You can't eat better, right? If you, the Gemara says, Kana Ebed, Kana Rav. If you purchase what we're still calling a slave, right? If you purchase such a person or you purchase his value, um, you've, really, you've really bought a master. If there's one pillow in the house, you have to give it to him. If there's one bed in the house, you have to give it to him. Right? If you're eating pizza, he has to eat pizza. You're not allowed to give him less or poorer food than you have. If you sleep in a really nice bed, you can't put him on a cot. It's mamash and iser doraisa to do that. You have to put him on a bed just like your bed. Right? And so on and so forth. So, clearly we're not talking about slavery the way normally we think of slavery. What would you call this person? An indentured servant. He's a servant. Right? Okay. Um, the master, by the way, by the way, let's say an evid is an evid ivory, and then, uh, I don't know, uh, his father somewhere dies, and he inherits some money. Put aside for the moment why his father let him be sold as an evid ivory, but okay. He inherits some money, he wants to pay off his debt. Can he do it? Yes. Absolutely. Pay off his debt. Right? Very simple. Okay? Um, what about if an Evid sells himself as an Evid Ivory and he's married and he's got kids? The master has to support the wife and the kids, but he is not allowed to profit from the work that they do. Like if the children go to work, he gains no profit. He has to support them. He has to put them up in the house with the same tanaim, but he can't, right? So if you look at the Allahs of Evid Ivory, right? But the most fascinating piece, okay, is what happens in the parsha itself. So, so can sort of give the different details of what happens if he wants to go free. By the way, whenever you see the words Amor Yomar, Zavon Nagan talks about this in a couple of places, what that means is, that, what does that mean? Why does it just say In Yomar Heaven? What does Amor Yomar mean? It means he's not just saying it once. He's repeatedly saying it. He's lambasting you. He really wants this. Okay? Now, this is interesting. First, you note the order here. He says, I love my master, I love my wife, and I love my children. The wife here, by the way, is what? She's a Shifchik Right? We're not talking about a Jewish woman that he came married with, right? But he married a non Jewish. Maidservant, it's actually the only way that a Jew can marry a non-Jew and it's permitted. A little more detail than we have time for right now. And he doesn't want to leave her. Right? But it's interesting that he says, First he loves his master. Now this is interesting. What does it even mean? Well, if you think about it, it's not such a bad life. You have no budget to worry about. You have no bills to pay. Your food, your, your, your housing, everything you need in life is provided. They take care of your wife. They take care of your kids. It's like a socialist dream. Why would you want to leave? Now, let's say this guy says, I don't want to leave. It's the end of six years. He's paid off his debt. He doesn't want to leave. Anybody remember what happens? They pierce his ear. Why do they pierce his ear? 
to show that you're a shadow servant, but I have no idea why. No idea, okay. Pardon? So Rashi, nope, it's a good guess, yeah. Rashi quotes the Medrash as in a Medrash or a Gemara. I think it's a Mechilta. Pardon? Correct. Because the ear that heard don't steal is now, like the first earring, is, is literally brought over the door. Some say in the hinge of the door. I'm not going to go there right now. And they clip his ear. Now ask me a question. Why what? Okay. He, because he stole, he gets his ear pierced. Ask me a question. Pardon? No, pierce his hand. Nah. Okay. You already told the purpose of the slave is because that wife is even able to say any longer. Nah, nah, come on. They're piercing his ear because he's a thief, right? Obvious question. If that were the case, why don't you pierce his ear at the start of the Oh, why don't you pierce his ear when he goes in? Why do you wait for six years? Something's not right here. What is this concept of inevitability? Okay? Now I want to show you another halacha. This is a fascinating halacha. Okay? Look in Vayikra. Again, we don't have time to get into why this is in Vayikra and that's in Shemot. It's an interesting topic, but there's another parsha of Eved Ivri, uh, of this same topic, that appears in Vayikra and Parshat Bahar, right next to the halachas of Shemitah. If your brother is destitute, which is, by the way, the source for the fact that only a poor person is allowed to sell himself into indentured servitude. You can't just treat him like a slave. He has to live with you. <coughs> That's the pasuk that tells us that we have to give him conditions that are equal to our own. And then it says, We only serve one master. You're not allowed, Lirdot is like sort of to, to be an overlord, to be a dictator. You're not allowed to work him with a type of work that's called Farah. Now, what's Farah? Meaningless work. Pardon? Meaningless work. Meaningless work, very good. <coughs> Backbreaking work. Where do I sign, find the concept of Farah? Pardon? That's right, right? So putting aside the midrashic different opinions there of what farach is, farach is hard backbreaking labor. Okay. So you're not allowed to work him or overwork him. He's a servant. He's paying off his debt. You have to treat him like a human being. Okay. But listen to what Rashi says. Rashi quotes the Gemara. Malacha shalolatzorech. You're not allowed. Now this is strange. Because farach clearly means... I mean, if you look up in the beginning of Parashat Shmot, on the word Farah, Rashi clearly says we're talking about backbreaking labor. Right? So Rashi here says, Unnecessary work. To cause him travail. Don't say to him, Don't tell him to boil a cup of water when you don't need it. Now listen. I understand it's not nice to tell somebody to do something if you don't really need it. But that's avodat farach. That's avodat farach. To cause a person to boil a water cup if you don't need it. And Rashi continues. Ador tachat ha-gefen ad 
or just keep weeding under the vine until I get back. Work without an end in sight. Right? And the Rambam actually postulates this way. The Rambam says in Allah in Perak Aleph Allah Hey Asul Avod Babafarech Ve'ezo Yavodat Farech Zu Avodah She'in La Kitzvah Work that has no end it, It's not limited There's no metric Ve'avodah She'in Otzarichla And work you don't need So it's clear that the Evid has rights Right? There are all sorts of other halachot If you damage his limb If you take out his eye He goes free and so on and so forth But why is this Avodat Farech? And what does that even mean? Right? So, I want to share with you two ideas. I remember I was at a um, Pesach program, and there were a lot of Holocaust survivors there. And you've, some of you have figured out that's where I got my Holocaust stories. And I got into a discussion with this fellow. This fellow was there with his wife, and they looked lonely. They had no kids, no grandkids. And so one of my kids went over to sit with them and I saw that he was sitting with an older couple so I went over to talk to them. Turned out this fellow was a Holocaust survivor. Amazing story. But not the type of Holocaust survivor we're thinking of. He's the Holocaust survivor who got out. He managed to get out. And he had a fascinating story. <clears throat> Lost most of his family but he got out. When did he get out? He got out before Kristallnacht, in 1937, I think he said it was, um, but Hitler was already in power for four years. So I asked him the obvious question. How did you know? Like, what made you decide to leave? And he actually told me that there was a specific event that told him it was time to go. He was a doctor, and he had an automobile, which was not as common in those days. And he figured, you know, there were brown shirts in the streets and sometimes they would beat up Jews and sometimes you'd have a Hitler rally and he would always try to avoid these things. Remember, the Jews had no clue about how bad it was going to get. But he figured he would drive around and generally, you know, he'd be able to avoid these things. One day, for whatever the reason, he drove the wrong way and he got caught up in a riot. And people are banging on his car and they recognize that he's Jewish somehow and they smash the window and they pull him out of the car. And the next thing you know, they kick him in the back, the tuchus, and he goes sprawling on the ground, and he gets up on his hands and knees, and he sees there are a bunch of other Jews. And somebody kicks him again and gives him a brush. And there's a bucket with water and soap. And the Jews are brushing the pavement. True story. And he sees that there's a big red mug and David. And he looks up and he realizes they're in front of Gestapo headquarters. They're in front of police headquarters. And he gets really annoyed. What idiot Jew did such a dumb thing? Somebody wants to, you know, rebel against the Nazis or tell them, you know, and he's going to make a point and he draws a mug and David in front of Gestapo headquarters, not realizing that a whole bunch of Jews are going to be forced to... And he said it was a terrifying experience. They're surrounded by a mob. There's an SS officer, Gestapo officers. Every once in a while they would kick you. And all he wanted to do was to scrub out that muggy David as quick as he could so that he could get out of there and get home. And they're there for hours. And they finally succeed in scrubbing out this muggy David. And the pavement is clean. 
and he, he's not sure if he should get up or not. And then he hears the crowd laughing. And he looks up, and the Gestapo officer has brought another bucket of red paint, and he gives it to a Jew, and he tells him to start painting. And the Jew paints a red mug and David, and they start doing it all over again. And he says, at that moment, I understood there was no logic. They didn't hate us for any reason. They just hated us. They wanted to break us. And he says, I knew at that point it was time to get out. Why is it us, sir? What does it mean to tell someone to do something that has no purpose? That's how you destroy a person's spirit. Right? So what exactly is happening in the world of Evid Ivri? Think about this for a minute. You're a thief. You stole some money. Or you have tremendous debt. What happens to your self-worth when you have nothing and no way to pay back, no way to rehabilitate yourself to the extent that you're going to have to become an indentured servant? Judaism says, I'm going to show you that you have value. I'm going to show you you have value. And they take him to the Besdin and they value him. And he gets to work off his debt and discover that he actually has value. And while he's going through that experience, it's the responsibility of the person who is his master, or really to some degree his servant, to demonstrate that he has value. And there's an unbelievable line in the Rambam. The Rambam says like this. Oh, oh, let's see. The person who purchases or makes a contract with an indentured servant. Achva is from the language of Ach. You have to treat him as a brother. In other words, you have an opportunity to demonstrate that just because someone is working for you doesn't mean you're better than him. He's your brother. He's just fallen on hard times. You could easily fall in hard times. Now I get what this is doing here. You know, we live in a world where it's all about the socioeconomic status, right? If, 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 if I make more, then I am more. Jusen says, who you are has nothing to do with what you have. In fact, we've talked about this before. There is no word in the Torah for having. Because having is an illusion. You don't really have anything in this world. What's the Hebrew word for having something? Anybody remember? Which means yesh. It is li to me. It's describing my relationship with it. It doesn't mean I have it. You don't really have anything in this world. Right? And the first halacha, in the first parsha after Matan Torah, is designed to teach me that every human being has value. That's a fundamental principle in Judaism. And what's the purpose of all this Torah if we don't see that every human being has value. That's what this is doing here. Right? There were... There's a... I'll just finish, right, with two things. First of all, it's interesting that we live in a world... What's the consequence for stealing in our society? What happens if you steal? You go to jail. So this is interesting. There is no jail in Judaism. Whenever I find jail in the Torah... You know what it means? I'll give you an example. The end of Parshat Shlach. Remember the story of the Makosha Sheitzim? We studied it in Tzitzis. 
some guy collecting wood, they don't know what to do with him, right? So they found him, and they bring him to Moshe, and Moshe and This is in Perak Tetvav Pasuk Lamadar. And they lock him up, because they don't know what to do with him. Jail's not a solution. Right? There are four million African Americans who were locked up in America because they have no idea what to do with them. Nobody really thinks they're being rehabilitated. Nobody's discovering in prison that they have value as human beings. So I'm not saying, by the way, that the solution is simple, but something's seriously wrong. Judaism says, that is no value. You have to teach a person when he makes a mistake, which is not a sin, mistake, that he does have value, and you have to rehabilitate them. And that's exactly what this halacha is doing here. And I'll just finish with the Sefer Achinoch. Sefer Achinoch, who I'm reminding you, wrote this for his son's bar mitzvah. It's a fantastic way to learn parsha, just to see the different mitzvot in the parsha, right? And he says, Mishoshei mitzvah zu, the root of this mitzvah, the understanding of this mitzvah, Shiratza kel, Shia mo Yisrael, Hashem wants the Jewish people, right? Asher bachar am kadosh, who chose us as a holy nation, right? And through doing mitzvot, we'll experience blessing, whatever that means. Kindness and mercy are amongst the most praiseworthy of character traits. And therefore, we're obligated to have mercy on somebody who finds himself under our hands. Right? And somebody who doesn't keep the halachas of Evadivri, right? By the way, where does the mitzvah of Evadivri apply? This is a great example of something we once spoke about. Where does the mitzvah of Evadivri apply? First of all, can you, can you I don't know, let's say Josh Alifas, you know, I don't know, he, uh, he plays the stock market, he loses everything, he owes a lot of money, he doesn't know what to do. So he comes over to Alicia, he says, Alicia, you know, buy me. I want to sell myself. I'm poor. Rabbim says you can do it if you're poor. Is he allowed to do it? No. Are you allowed to do it? No, why not? Pardon? Well, you could come up with a president. No. You don't owe him the debt. You want to pay off your debt. No, you have to understand how this works. Let's say you owe $100,000 and you don't have $100,000. Okay? If you do, we should talk later, but you don't have it, right? So you say to Alicia Shmalo, you know, I'm a computer programmer. I'll work for you for 10 years, right? $10,000 a year. And you'll take the $100,000 and you'll pay off my debtors. That's how it works. And then he has to support you and put you in the house, whatever. And he figures, you know what? You're worth more than that. So it's worth as well, right? Why are you not allowed to do that anymore? There's no Yovel. Because the whole system, which allows you after six years to say, I don't want to go free, Right? is predicated on the fact that there's a system of years and counting and Yovel and everything else that happens. There's no Yovel, you can never go three. So therefore, there's no evidence. But there's another interesting detail. Let's say there is a Yovel. Let's say, <coughs> we get a Sanhedrin, we get Mashiach. Nebuch, you go back to Chutzlaritz and you're in University of, I don't know, Maryland? Where are you going? University of Maryland. And you suddenly realize you can't afford the tuition. And Shmalo comes with you there too, right? He's in Rutgers. Yeah, he's in Rutgers, right? So you send him an email, say, buy me. 
right? Can you do it? And he says, well, I don't know. No, no, they started you over again. Can you do it? No, probably not. Why not? Because you're not in Israel. Now, that's interesting. What does this mitzvah have to do with Eretz Israel? Like, if it's a message of every human being is valuable, right? So this is where the idea that it's not just about the individual, it's about something bigger than the individual, right? This is a perfect example of that, because what does the Chinuch say? Based on the Gemara, right? Right? This mitzvah only applies in Israel. Because only in this place are we creating a model society. This is part of creating a society. It's not just about me becoming a better person. And if somebody doesn't keep this halachos, he's teaching himself to be cruel. This first mitzvah in Parshat Mishpatim, which is really the beginning of our journey into mitzvot and halachot, after our Sinai, is all about becoming a better human being. It's all about being kind, being merciful, seeing the other person, trying to put yourself in the other person's place. So, we get to Sunday morning, and you're walking in the door, right? People don't realize. They think there's like 10 rabbis that are right there. There's really more. Have you ever talked Torah with Moshe, the cleaning guy? Anybody done this? He's a start. He's Moshe Rabbeinu. He's a stark Tamil Chacham, right? So, what should be obvious, unfortunately in the world, is not always obvious. Like, just the fact that somebody happens to be doing something different doesn't make him any more or any less. And that's, that's the idea on which all of Torah is predicated. Now you can go out and learn the rest of the Tosasim and see where you get to. So that's a little bit of food for thought. There's a lot more to say, but I'm losing my voice. Um, I'm Pasha Mishpatim. Any questions?